Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Katie Cho, a third-year psychiatry resident at the Kirk Corian School of Medicine at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Today, we will be discussing an interesting case of a patient with bipolar disorder. If you have been following along with the Psychiatry Morning Report book, this is case number five, found on page 33. The case begins with a 45-year-old female who is brought to the emergency department by her husband. He says his wife has been up late at night for eight days redecorating the interior of their house. She has been excitedly painting and refurnishing the living room and kitchen until around 5 a.m. each day, and she wakes up three hours later only to start again. Her husband says nothing like this has happened to his wife before. Upon examination, the patient is euphoric and her speech is fast and difficult to interrupt. What are the first steps in evaluating the behavioral changes in this patient? This patient is exhibiting abnormally elevated mood, reduced need for sleep, and increased goal-directed activity for multiple days. This behavior is concerning for a manic episode, which is a psychiatric emergency because the patient can be a danger to herself or others due to severely impaired judgment. Your first job is to ensure safety. You may need to hospitalize the patient, or you may decide that there is sufficient support in her environment to attempt to manage her as an outpatient in a partial hospitalization program. Either way, it is important to determine whether the cause of the manic episode is secondary to a medical issue, substance-induced, or a primary psychiatric diagnosis such as bipolar 1 disorder. Possible medical causes include hyperthyroidism, temporal lobe seizures, neoplasms, and systemic infections such as human immunodeficiency virus or HIV. Substance or medication-induced causes may include antidepressants, sympathomimetics such as cocaine, amphetamines, or levodopa, corticosteroids, and bronchodilators. To exclude some of the more common organic causes of mania, the physician would order a urine drug or toxicology screen, serum levels of thyroxine, thyroid-stimulating hormone, vitamins B12 and folate, an electroencephalogram or EEG, and brain imaging such as a computed tomography or CT of the head. Returning to the patient. When asked if there is any family history of mood disorder, the patient replies that her deceased father had extreme mood swings, for which he was hospitalized multiple times and started on many different medications. Time for a clinical pearl. Of all the major psychiatric disorders, bipolar 1 has the strongest genetic link. A first-degree relative of someone with bipolar disorder is at 10 times greater risk of developing the illness than the general population. So how do you diagnose bipolar 1 disorder? Bipolar 1 disorder requires a history of at least one manic episode. Depressive episodes, hypomanic episodes, or euthymia, also known as normal mood or a patient's baseline, may occur between manic episodes, but their presence is not necessary for the diagnosis of bipolar 1. A manic episode consists of a persistently elevated, expansive, or irritable mood, 
accompanied by an unusual increase in activity or excess energy that lasts at least one week. If a manic episode requires inpatient treatment, the duration of the episode would not determine whether the diagnosis is made. In addition, there need to be at least three of the following symptoms or four of the following if the person's mood is only irritable. The symptoms include pressured speech or being much more talkative, often difficult to interrupt, flight of ideas or racing thoughts, being easily distracted, having an inflated self-esteem, needing very little sleep but feeling well-rested, an increase in activities and completing tasks, or psychomotor agitation and restlessness. Another symptom may be doing things that are very risky or things that may cause negative consequences. Bipolar 2 disorder requires a history of at least one major depressive episode and at least one hypomanic episode. Hypomania differs from mania in that symptoms last at least four days rather than a week. And the episode does not cause any major problems with social or occupational functioning. If the person has experienced psychosis during the episode, then the episode is considered mania. A patient cannot have both type 1 and type 2 bipolar illness. If the patient has ever experienced a full manic episode, then bipolar 1 is the diagnosis. Now another pearl. Despite the shared name, bipolar 1 and 2 disorder have different diagnostic criteria and do not share genetic heritage. Nonetheless, treatment regimens are very similar. Whereas both disorders tend to be chronic and require long-term treatment, bipolar 2 frequently has a better functional prognosis. Unfortunately, the suicide risk is similar for both disorders. So what are the acute and maintenance pharmacotherapeutic treatment options for bipolar disorder? For acute bipolar manic symptoms, certain mood stabilizers and or atypical antipsychotics may be used. The most effective mood stabilizers for acute mania are lithium, valproic acid, and carbamazepine. Lithium is associated with a moderate reduction in symptoms in 40-80% to 80% of patients after 2-3 to three weeks of treatment for acute mania. However, lithium has a low therapeutic index and needs to be monitored closely to avoid toxicity. Furthermore, the active fraction of lithium is the intracellular fraction and the delay in accumulation of intracellular lithium delays the time to response. Valproic acid and carbamazepine have a faster onset of action and more than half of the patients experience significant improvement in manic symptoms. Atypical antipsychotics are also effective as monotherapy or in combination with a mood stabilizer. Combination therapy tends to show a greater and faster response than monotherapy. Some atypical antipsychotics approved for acute mania include aripiprazole, asenapine, cariprazine, olanzapine, quetiapine, risperidone, ziprazidone. For bipolar depression, antidepressants are discouraged as monotherapy because of concern of activating mania and destabilizing the illness, i.e. inducing cycling. Some efficacious treatments for acute bipolar 1 depression include quetiapine, lorazidone, pramipexol, combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine, a combination of lorazidone and lithium, a combination of lorazidone and valproic acid. Only quetiapine monotherapy is approved for bipolar 2 depression. 
In addition to approved agents, placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials have demonstrated efficacy of lamotrigine, primipexil, modafinil, and armodafinil in bipolar depression with evidence of illness destabilization in short-term studies. For many patients, the medications that were effective in the acute phase became the first choice for maintenance treatment. At optimal doses, lithium reduces the rate of recurrence of mood episodes by 50%. Valparic acid and carbamazepine may be especially useful for patients with rapid cycling or mixed states. The atypical antipsychotics approved for maintenance treatment are aripiprazole, quetiapine, olanzapine, risperidone, and zeprazidone. Although some of these agents are approved as monotherapy, the best practice is to combine them with the mood stabilizer. Now let's go back to our patient. The patient is hospitalized to control her mania. A workup reveals normal complete blood count or CBC and complete metabolic panel, CMP, and a negative urine tox screen. Brain imaging is unremarkable. The diagnosis of bipolar 1 disorder is made. She is prescribed 1,200 milligrams of lithium per day and she stabilizes. She fully recovers within two weeks and is discharged from the hospital, returning to work soon after. Lithium remains the gold standard treatment for bipolar disorder. It is the only mood stabilizer that reduces the risk of suicide when used long-term. And not only that, it reduces the risk by up to sevenfold. Now, what are some ways of using non-pharmacotherapeutic options for treatment of bipolar disorder. Psychotherapy can improve outcomes by prolonging remission. After the acute manic or depressive episodes are controlled, the patient can benefit from supportive psychotherapy, group therapy, or family therapy. For refractory or life-threatening acute mania or depression, electroconvulsive therapy or ECT is very effective. For a pregnant woman having a manic episode, ECT is one of the best treatment options and can be used with reasonable safety in all trimesters. We now see the patient a month after discharge when she follows up in an outpatient clinic. She complains of hand tremors interfering with daily function. She has adhered to her 1200 milligrams a day of lithium regimen. Her lithium dose is reduced now to 900 milligrams a day. Subsequently, her tremors become much more tolerable. Things to consider. The therapeutic range for lithium is 0.6 to 1.2 milliequivalent per liter. Lower levels are considered ineffective, whereas higher levels lead to more side effects and possible toxicity. Blood lithium levels should be monitored regularly as a result. Our patient is adhering to her new regimen of 900 milligrams a day and remains stable for 14 months with few symptoms and a small residual tremor. However, she returns to the emergency department with manic symptoms. At this time, her lithium level is 0.7 milliequivalents per liter, and she has no notable tremor on exam. Her lithium is increased to 1,200 milligrams a day, resulting in a lithium level of 1.0 without tremor, and she stabilizes without requiring hospitalization. Six weeks later, her disabling tremor has returned. How can lithium side effects be used to guide prevention of recurrent manic episodes? Patients who experience disabling side effects from lithium therapy are often prescribed a lower dose to mitigate those side effects. 
However, by reducing the dose enough to lessen these symptoms, physicians are unintentionally increasing the risk for relapse and recurrence of mania. In this patient's case, the 1,200 mg a day lithium dose was reduced to 900 mg a day to combat her debilitating tremor. Yet the resulting lithium level of 0.7 was ultimately not high enough to prevent recurrence of manic symptoms, even though the level fell within the recommended 0.6 to 1.2 range. Interestingly, manic patients tolerate higher lithium levels with fewer side effects than euthymic patients. This example demonstrates that there is an increased need for lithium during active manic episodes. An explanation for the increased need for lithium during periods of active mania is that acutely manic patients tend to retain more lithium ions than euthymic patients. In a prospective cohort study, acutely manic subjects retained more lithium than euthymic subjects while achieving the same serum lithium level. This could be due to an increase in intracellular lithium ions during active mania, resulting in lower levels of serum lithium. One way to determine when the lithium dose should be increased in order to prevent a full-blown manic episode is by looking for a lack of or reduction of side effects. When the patient in this case presented with manic symptoms, her residual tremor was absent. Her lack of tremor was likely caused by the increased lithium retention that accompanies acute mania. Therefore, patients should be educated to look for a reduction of adverse drug reactions and return to subsodromal symptoms as indications to rapidly increase their lithium dose. Once euthymia is reestablished, it is reasonable to reduce the dose only if adverse reactions return. By using lithium side effects to guide changes in dosing, patients can prevent the development of a manic episode, and they may have more prolonged periods of remission. Of course, the daily dose of lithium is not a useful marker of effectiveness to prevent a manic episode or the incidence of adverse drug reactions. Patient education, close surveillance during patient visits, and flexible dosage of lithium may help optimize prophylaxis. Now the patient remains stable on lithium for the next 10 years, changing the dose as needed to prevent manic episodes and balance drug side effects. However, her most recent routine labs are notable for an estimated glomerular filtration rate or eGFR in the 50s when previously it was in the 70s. Creatinine was 1.5 when previously it was stable at 1.0 to 1.1. Her recent BUN was a 20 when previously it was stable at 12 to 15. A magnetic resonance image or MRI of her kidneys was obtained and the results reveal numerous microcysts in the medullary and cortical regions. If you have the book with you, you can see it in figure 5.1. So how can the etiology of renal dysfunction be identified as a lithium-induced versus lithium-independent cause? Patients with mood disturbance have higher rates of renal disease independent of lithium use. Therefore, it is important to be able to distinguish whether a patient's nephropathy is lithium-related or not. However, lithium use is associated with two types of renal disease. Lithium may reduce the kidney's ability to concentrate the urine or its ability to filter blood. Lithium reduces the concentrating ability of the kidney through interference with vasopressin or by reversible renal tubular damage. Because these are reversible, they are problematic but not of great concern. However, reduction in creatinine clearance is much more worrisome. 
The most sensitive and specific screening tool for lithium-induced glomerular nephropathy is an MRI evaluation for microcysts in the kidneys. Lithium-induced glomerular dysfunction usually occurs after 10 to 20 years of lithium use, and it is characterized by abundant renal microcysts that result in reduced GFR. These microcysts can be found anywhere in the kidney and show up as small, hyperintense lesions on T2-weighted MRI. The mechanism for lithium-related microcyst formation is the phosphorylation and subsequent inhibition of the glycogen synthase kinase 3-beta enzyme. The phosphorylated version of this enzyme is associated with microcyst development in the renal tubule epithelium. A mass effect is created as more and more microcysts develop, reducing GFR. Patients whose eGFR is greater than 40 have a higher chance of recovery of renal function after stopping lithium. The main risk factor for the development of lithium-induced nephropathy is the duration of drug exposure. Chronic lithium exposure can stimulate microcyst formation, resulting in the decreased estimated GFR that we see in our patient. Speaking of our patient, because of the confirmation of lithium-induced renal toxicity, the patient is slowly weaned off lithium. Over the next year and a half, she fails multiple different pharmacotherapy regimens, including valproic acid, carbamazepine, risperidone, and aripiprazole. She ends up being hospitalized five times for manic episodes. She started smoking for the first time two packs of cigarettes per day. She is desperate to find a medication that will work for her. So how can pharmacogenomics be used to improve outcomes for patients with bipolar disorder? Certain genes can have significant effects on psychiatric treatment. Patients who fail multiple medication trials should undergo pharmacogenomic testing to identify drugs that may be metabolized too slowly, which would result in excessive side effects at a typical dose, or too quickly, which would result in lack of efficacy at typical doses. For a patient, because of her poor treatment response over the past year and a half, she decides to undergo pharmacogenomic testing to predict her response to olanzapine. A SALT4A1-1 haplotype is identified, as is a hyperinducible allele at CYP1A2. Because of her smoking history, she has started on a 30 mg a day dose of olanzapine, which is twice the usual dose. On the single agent, she has not been hospitalized and has shown significant improvement in outpatient follow-up. Now, there are a few genes that predict response to a specific drug. The various sulfotransferase or SALT gene products catalyze the biotransformation of many different neurotransmitters, hormones, drugs, and xenobiotics. Patients who have the SALT4A1-1 haplotype are more likely to have an effective response to olanzapine than those without the haplotype. Olanzapine is metabolized by the cytochrome enzyme CYP1A2. This gene product is induced by exposure to any burned hydrocarbon. However, a few individuals have a hyperinducible variant. In these CYP1A2 hyperinducers, exposure to tobacco smoke will increase CYP1A2 enzyme activity. As a result, Patients with this variant may require significantly higher doses of olanzapine. To conclude, let's discuss some pearls. The lifetime prevalence of bipolar 1 disorder is approximately 1-2%, to with women and men being equally affected. 
The onset is usually before the age of 30, with a mean age of 18 for the first mood episode. The lifetime prevalence of bipolar 2 is not as clear, as some studies will report higher, whereas other studies report lower than bipolar 1. Of patients with bipolar disorder, 25 to 50% will attempt suicide at least once, and 5 to 15% die by suicide. An untreated manic episode usually lasts an average of two months, whereas an untreated depression may last three to six months. The course of bipolar disorder is typically chronic with relapses. The frequency of mood episodes increases as a function of the number of previous mood episodes. Bipolar 1 disorder may present with psychotic features. Psychotic features will, would include hallucinations, delusions, disorganized behaviors, or disorganized speech. It is important to keep bipolar disorder on the differential in a patient with psychosis. Combination treatment with a mood stabilizer and an atypical antipsychotic is especially helpful for these patients. Patients who experience mania in the postpartum period have a high chance of relapse with future deliveries. These patients should be prophylactically treated with mood stabilizers in the peripartum period. Finally, for our last pearl, mood episodes appear to be toxic to the brain. Cognitive decline may occur as a long-term consequence of poorly controlled bipolar disorder. Onset of dementia may occur earlier than in the general population unless patients are adequately controlled. Additionally, lithium may be neuroprotective in patients with bipolar disorder, resulting in a delay in the onset of dementia to match the general population. This concludes our case discussion for today. Please turn to Chapter 5 of the Psychiatry Morning Report if you would like to review the case yourself or any of the clinical pearls presented today. Again, my name is Katie Cho. It was a pleasure. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.